0: Welcome to the Wisdom and Wealth Podcast, a series of conversations designed to equip our listeners with helpful insights necessary to simplify the critical decision points of life. We believe true wealth is the thing money cannot buy and death cannot take away. Furthermore, we also believe our calling is to enable others to fulfill their own. And to that end, we endeavor. Investment advisory services offered through CWM, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment advisor. Welcome into another episode of Wisdom and Wealth. I'm Josh Clues, the Senior Wealth Planner here in the Woodlands, Texas for Carson Wealth. Today, I'm joined by Jamie Hopkins, our Managing Director of Wealth Solutions. Uh, welcome in, Jamie.
1: Hey, Josh. It's uh, good to talk to you again. And yeah, i like a warm welcome. So welcome welcome you back to, to the show. I know you run it, but it's uh, good to spend some time with you, my friend.
0: You as well. Today, I want to jump into different factors that are... Uh, friends and neighbors should consider during a recession or a bear market. Um, I don't want to be too timely, but I think it's definitely, there's always kind of a checklist of things that I think makes sense from a planning perspective. And so I'm curious to get your feedback on what, what's on your list um, and what you think is overlooked often in that process.
1: It's uh, a great, way to frame this up and, you know, whether you're talking about a recession or a market correction or bear market, uh, you know, or to the micro level, like, are you having a household bear market or recession? And Mm -hmm. I remember pointing that out once to somebody, you know, when we were talking about retirement and I'm going a little off here, but I'll I'll bring it back. I promise if everyone just bears with me, (laughs) (laughs) which is, you know, the world is not equal. And, the impacts of recessions and downturns and good markets, bad markets aren't equal. Like there are some people who make a lot of money in bear markets. And if you go back and you look at 08, 09, for some people, it was really scary and felt awful and so many millions of people were unemployed, but for others, it was a huge opportunity. And especially as you come out of tough periods of time, it feels like a crisis while you're in them. And when you look back, it just feels like there was a lot of missed opportunity or available opportunity. But down markets can happen in your own area, in your part of the country, in your, mm-hmm. you know, profession, your market. And then all of a sudden you need to act to those too. So ultimately, so much of this comes down to the personal level. Like you could have an individual retirement crisis, even though the country might be doing okay. And so when you get back to this, one thing I always talk about is cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. It was one of the first articles I wrote for Yahoo going back years ago. And I remember that it, you know, there's that old saying like cash is king. And then I realized like really for most Americans, cash flow is what's important. What's your inflow versus your outflow? And is your outflow getting off? And it's the whole secret to building wealth and savings, right? Is you got to have that inflow more than the outflow long term and if you don't have that eventually you will end up with no money right it's just basic math you got more negative yeah. than positive <laughs> eventually you run I, it i
0: think my grandfather used to say if your outflow exceeds your inflow long enough your overhead will be your downfall
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah And so that's the very first one. And that doesn't mean that you have to go through like the awful process of budgeting. And I mean, awful, like the true budgeting where you track every dollar and cent. for a lot of people. That's not the best way to do things. For some people, it works well. And you actually have to get super detailed to get the house in order. For a lot of people, like big picture budgeting is a little bit better. So you just start looking at areas of spending. I think today, a lot of people end up with, you know, subscriptions that they don't know they have. And Mm -hmm. they end up with maybe spending a little bit more on entertainment, spending a little bit more on household goods and services than you need to on food, and that you can be strategic about. I don't know necessarily reducing your quality of life, but spending differently to maintain the same quality of life. And you know, I I noticed one this last week. I, I had like lime scooters, which are you know that you you hop on the scooters, you drive around, and like. I, I When I'm home, I've never been on a Lime scooter. Like, you drive your car. And I'm on, like, some subscription for that company, and I I asked to cancel it because I was like, why am I – sometime on the app, I probably clicked, sure, like, I don't care, like, just sign me up. And then, (laughs) you know, like, gave me six free – I have no idea how I got signed up, and that's entirely on me. But a lot of people have accumulated those subscriptions, whether it's TV, entertainment, something like that. And I think just right-sizing your cash flow is super important, and that could help out in any type of down market like today.
0: Absolutely, and, and the other piece too. I, I know budgeting can often get a a bad rap, but by the same token, being clear, especially with your loved ones or your spouse, on what you're going to prioritize is incredibly helpful, so that you're not in this constant uh, kind of anxiety status about what you're spending money on, right? If you're, if you're very clear on, Hey, what, what the priority is, it allows you to enjoy things that much more when you know that you've planned for it, you've prioritized it and, you know, you've, you've delayed, um, you know, the, the and put forward the appropriate amount of savings towards it. And, and really it goes back to our, what we call locally, our bucketing strategy. Um, you know, where. We find it helpful not to look at your funds in one large pot, but rather in three buckets, you know what you're gonna spend in the next say one to three years, what you're gonna spend in years, say three to six or even ten, and what you're gonna spend out beyond that because all of those buckets should have different risk profiles mm-hmm. um, and if you are if your personal situation is different, maybe you have more. In your bucket one than the average person does, um, it just depends on what your scenario is. So I love the way that you framed, um, not looking at the macro and letting it completely, you know, persuade you on what your circumstance is, Jamie. It's very helpful. Anything else from a cash flow perspective on where you see people go wrong? Well, let's dive into what
1: you just talked about a bit, too. And I'll yeah. add one thing I think that people mess up on a spending mechanism. So, you know, you kind of mentioned these the the bucket approach, the now, soon, later buckets. And the other way to talk about those are needs, wants, and wishes. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times people will misprioritize things. And that you, you put stuff in needs that are really not needs. And you put things in your wants, which are actually probably needs, even though it's not food and clothing, but is it what keeps your your spouse happy? And like without that one, like your spouse is miserable and you get a divorce, like, guess what? Like that extra vacation a year then very much might be a need, right? Like it's, it, it's not optional, even though it looks like on a balance sheet is an optional expense. And I remember doing that exercise with somebody and like, that was the most thing, you know, the most important thing they got enjoyment out of a year was this family vacation. And reality was like, look, you should cut back in other areas before you cut that because like happiness is important. And if you're miserable the entire year, but we met all these other goals, like who cares? You know, if I, if I told you I had two financial plans and one of them made you as much money as possible, but you were miserable and the other one you died with zero dollars left in your bank account, but you're the happiest person alive, most people would pick option two. Maybe not everybody, but most because happiness matters. So how you spend your money matters. And that's where I'm getting back to your, your first question, which was what are some mistakes that people make when it comes to spending? People don't prioritize spending to the things that actually make them happy. They get stuck Mm -hmm. in a cycle and you're spending on things. And if you really stopped and be like, does that make you happier? If you went back and said, look, I had no cable for the last year. Like, would you be any unhappier? What if you spent that for a lawn service instead and somebody came and cut your lawns every Saturday and that's your trade-off? I don't have TV, but I have my Saturday back and it costs the same amount probably to have cable as it does to have somebody cut your lawn. Like for a lot of people, that would actually improve their happiness. They'd enjoy that spending better. They get more time back in their life and they didn't spend an additional dollar more total. So that's kind of like right sizing your spending. And a lot of times y- you've probably heard this before too, Josh, where somebody, you know, this is the relationship side. I know we <laughs> I mentioned spouses a bunch, my my wife's upstairs working somewhere. And, uh, you know, if you went to her and just said like, oh, I just kept buying her stuff. She wouldn't be any happier. It's not her love language. She doesn't want a bunch of gifts. Yeah. She wants that quality time. She wants things that are time saving. So like the lawn example is one. I love doing manual labor, I love doing stuff outside, but my wife wants time back on the weekends, not me working outside every Saturday. So instead of buying her things like that, it's shift that money towards stuff that brings back time to our family. And that's actually going to make your spouse happier in that situation. So do you know where that spending is? Like, we've all heard the person like, oh, I buy, I buy my, you know, someone I'm dating all this stuff and they don't seem to care. And it's like, well, you're spending on the wrong things. Like they didn't want a bunch of stuff. So a lot Mm -hmm. of people, what you see is they get taught in cycles of spending and they're just spending on things that aren't bringing them happiness. So you could actually probably go back through your life and get rid of a lot of things that have not changed your happiness and put those towards things that actually do make your life better.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and just to to circle back again to the bucketing strategy, the thing that I find most helpful about it is when there are conditions beyond your control, you want to do something. That is your tendency is to you, you have to feel as if you're doing something in order to get a sense that you're in control. So it allows you to focus on something that you can control. Um in a in a measured way. And so you can look at that bucket one. And if you're working, we typically recommend it be no larger than say six months or maybe a year, depending on your personal circumstances. If you're retired, that's where we go to the you know one to three years or in some cases, it just depends. But it allows you to look at that and say, okay, what is inside that bucket? Um, do we think that the cur- current market condition is gonna last for longer than this year? And we view that bucket one as how you get your paycheck. And so your paycheck is, in some cases, given on how it's, uh, invested, probably going to go up a little bit in value because it's in highly secure bonds, um, you know, very liquid, um, and stable assets. Whereas, you know, your bucket two is going to be, you know, a a more healthy split between stocks to bonds and your bucket three is going to take more risk, but it just allows you to segment what you're looking at. I run into people all the time that, Th- they they think that going all the cash puts them in the driver's seat <laughs> um out on the street and you're just like oh like the research just doesn't doesn't bode well for that um because it creates a whole new set of issues on the other end and a whole another um, decision matrix that matrix that has to co- has to be played out are there other areas that you have found jamie that are helpful um that might be helpful for while you're working but not helpful when you're retired?
1: The conversation about cash, whether you're working or or not working is a huge one. And I'd say in the United States, we don't view cash as an investment a lot of times, uh, you know, or a return piece. And it's interesting because if you go outside of the US, you know, cash and currencies is much more an integral part of finance in the sense of, you know, currency risk The U.S. and the U.S. dollar is so strong that if you live in the U.S., you're like, hey, like we don't need to do that. Like we don't currency de-risk a whole lot here because the world ties to the U.S. dollar. But if you understand kind of more broadly, like a lot of countries do have to de-risk and like individual investors there buy into other currencies to de-risk, that there is risk associated with any type of currency, including the U.S. dollar and cash. And if you look at cash today and what that's paying from a bank or anybody out there paying anything on your cash, and you look at inflation and you look at what uh, somebody can borrow or borrow out money at, you see that there's a huge difference between all those three things, that somebody is making money on your cash and it's not you, right? Like, I think that's a really important thing to remember. If your cash is sitting there and you're getting paid, you know, 0.1% out there in the world or wherever you are, zero at some places, like they're lending that money out at a higher rate than that. So there is a cost to cash, right? And when inflation is as high as it is this year, there's a cost to cash. Uh, Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that moving stuff in the cash from time to time is a bad strategy either, but doing it too long, and that's where it gets back to the research, is carrying too much cash for too long does drag down total returns on average from you know portfolios. So again, different time periods can have different outcomes, but overall in the long run, that's what tends to happen. So one of the challenges always like people get to retirement and they say, hey, I'm going to de-risk and I'm going to go to cash. Well, you are adding on some type of risk. You're just moving one risk to a different area of risk and trying to balance that. But if you do that for too long and you get too conservative in the sense of getting out of the markets, it does, bra- does tend to drag down your total returns, which can then cause your money to run out faster than it otherwise would have, which is kind of against what you thought you were solving, right? Like you thought like, hey, I'm going to protect my money. But by pulling away from returns, you actually reduce the longevity of that portfolio. And that's hard for people to get kind of in their mind, especially in retirement, when you start taking withdrawals or spending down this money. And there's that true dynamic of savings versus spending, and that some of the things that work better for us during a savings time period don't work as well during a spending time frame, especially pulling down our returns uh, over a long period of time. So it, that's a big challenge out there, as I'd say, is in communication and understanding and just like feeling okay with our, with our situation. So that's a lot going on in, in one piece right there. I, I covered a lot of different things, but I think boiling it back to your question is, you know, kind of, Challenges that are out there, some of the things with cash and some of the different pieces from when we're working versus retired. Those are a lot. Uh, I'll hit two things here, too, to kind of add under this whole view is if we're in a down market cycle, right? Pay attention to taxes. Should you liquidate more things because you're in a lower tax bracket? So, or should you engage in tax loss harvesting? And that doesn't always mean selling stuff with a gain. It could just be realizing some of your losses and offsetting ordinary income, right? There's limits on that. And then what you can reinvest back in, it could be, you know, similar, but not identical security, stuff like that. Um, So you have a lot of strategies out there, especially this year. I think there's a lot of tax planning that could be done effectively. Tax mm-hmm. planning is like our, our fingernail, <laughs> your finger thumbprints. Uh, thumbprints is the right one. Paul West always used to say this, right? It's like our, our thumbprint, it's unique to us. So tax planning, we got to drive into the details what your situation was like. But years like this, while challenging in a lot of ways, open up a lot of tax opportunities.
0: Absolutely. and And chief among them are the opportunity to convert Assets Mm -hmm. from your IRA, your regular IRA, or maybe even your 401k, depending on your, your plan documents to a Roth and pay a lesser valuation while the stock market's down, um, and capture some of that upside without having to pay some tax on it. Um, you know, because you're taking it at a lower valuation. Um, it's one of those instances where it just makes sense, uh, to, to actually look at that. And those are things that, um, you're going to need to do some planning on. And you're if you haven't talked to your advisor about those types of things, you definitely should be. Um, I, I'm glad you mentioned the, I, I wanted to circle back to this real quick. Um, we, we talk internally a lot about intangible, your intangible balance sheet as well as your, your tangible balance sheet. Um, we never want our, the, the reason we find it helpful to use a bucketing framework in, Moments like a recession or moments like a bear market, is that it gets rid of some of that momentary anxiety. We joke all the time that everyone would be happy, happier if they just would not watch financial TV as much, <laughs> right um, just because the, the anxiety might not be as prevalent. And so the bucketing framework allows you to look at a headline that and, and just say, "Eh, will that headline be there tomorrow? Will it be there in a week? Will it be there in two weeks? Will it be there in three years?" Probably not. We we intuitively know that, that that's the case. But what it allows you to do is stop worrying about your financial balance sheet and focus in on your intangible balance sheet, i.e. those memories that you want to make with mm-hmm. your loved ones, um, and not put those at risk because you've already allocated for those within your financial plan. i uh, Josh- sorry, that, that was a little bit of a, a roundabout, but I was like, man, I totally <laughs> forgot to bring that up. But anyway... <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, I'll I'll kind of close out my thoughts here on this one with this, which is, you know, going back to that, when when you're concerned about what's going on in the world, right? And you have that kind of anxiety, that fear, that uncertainty driving out there. It's why planning is so important. And it's not the plan itself, right? Like it's the act of planning. And when you use something like a bucket approach, you have a reason and a purpose for all of your investments and your allocations. Like you understand why you hold what you hold and for Mm -hmm. what purpose. So it gives that degree of like knowing to you that, Hey, I hold this in bucket one for this reason. So you don't have to wake up with that uncertainty around the things that you own. You then know why you own each thing and where it is. And to me, like that's one of the true benefits from a, like, from a mental and peace of mind standpoint on why you do this type of planning.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, One other thing that I do want to bring up, um, bear markets and recessions are often a good time to look at gifting as well. While valuations are lower, obviously it allows you to get creative with um, how you can gift things and you can actually gift more, if it specifically if you're looking at you know, things that are marketable. Um, so don't, don't un- overlook that opportunity as well for your loved ones um, if you have centralized stock or if you have certain things that, that you want to gift during that time. Um, it also provides just an opportunity to review your estate plan. Right there's there's ways in which um, if you know if the opportunity presents itself, it may be the the right time to go ahead and relook at all of your estate docs and see if those are this is a time to make sure that everything is in order. Are we missing anything else from a, a from a planning perspective and just the opportunities that might present themselves, Jamie?
1: Those are good ones, and when you think about the gifting. I'll I'll add on to that a little bit, which is the gifting power now can kind of come in two folds. One is things you want to just move away from yourself and like while you're alive transfers to loved ones. And that could be appreciated stocks that have now pulled back a little bit this year. It could be portions of a company if the company valuation is down. And so what, you know, your point was like, it allows us to gift, but from the dollar amount is less than it would have been in other years. But the notion that that's going to go back up over time so we can kind of gift it away from a tax perspective at a lower dollar amount. So it can be an effective time to give when prices might be depressed on something. The other thing is, like you mentioned, the estate ramifications, you know, the gifting, if you uh, have enough to be subject to the uh, federal estate tax or if you have a state-level transfer or gift tax, you know, depressed values... Can also be beneficial because you can transform more out at a lower present value than you might in the future. And again, that can be an effective strategy. But the whole notion—this goes back to that what I said before—is you know maybe you do none of those things, but the current market conditions and how you're feeling allows you to go back to your plan and look at everything and say, you know what, like no, like the plan is actually in really good shape. I'm doing well because we had a plan and we're moving forward comfortably. And maybe I'm not transferring things, but at least we were able to look at it, understand it. We know where everything is and I know why I'm gifting or not gifting. So again, like even that aspect of it, use the current, you know, conditions to review things and make sure that you are in line where your plan is taking you.
0: And the biggest piece, again, that, that I encounter, especially in our community is ensuring that you're working with someone who is looking at all of your assets, not just the assets that that are in their control and they're investing, but someone who A, is taking the time to actually review your tax return with a fine-tooth comb and get intimately acquainted with what your situation is. And then B, whether they manage those assets or not, they're looking at what your holistic balance sheet looks like and how they can, and giving you holistic advice. Um, because often that those are the biggest, the two biggest detriments to you getting a a holistic plan in this way. So um, Jamie, thank you so much for your time again today on this, this topic. I know often it's um, easy to, to want to do the wrong things during a, or, you know, out of uh, anxiety, do things that just may not be as helpful. And so hopefully we have uh, given prospective clients and current clients, just a a reaffirmation of why we do what we do and um, what they should consider in the future.
1: Yeah, as always, Josh, thanks for having me on. Thanks for all the great work that you're doing.
0: Our pleasure. Well, that's all for today. Thank you again for joining us. We trust that you are better equipped to steward both your wealth and your financial resources. If you have questions or suggestions for a future topic, please direct those to InfoHoustonCarsonWealth.com. May you and your family encounter truth, beauty, and goodness on the road ahead. The opinions voiced in Wisdom and Wealth with Josh Clues are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy assures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Our address is 1780 Hughes Landing, Suite 570, The Woodlands, Texas, 77380. A Roth IRA offers tax-free withdrawals on taxable contributions. To qualify for the tax-free and penalty-free withdrawal or earnings, a Roth IRA must be in place for at least five tax years. And the distributions must take place after age 59 and a half or due to death, disability, or a first time home purchase up to $10,000 lifetime maximum. Depending on the state law, Roth IRA distributions may be subject to state taxes.